All Jim Obergefell wanted was to marry John Arthur, his partner of 20 years, before he died of ALS. But in 2013, Ohio would not recognize gay marriage. And so, by fighting to get his union to John legally recognized, Jim unexpectedly changed history. In 2015, Jim became the lead plaintiff in the landmark Supreme Court case Obergefell v. Hodges, which resulted in the legalization of same-sex marriage across the United States. Embracing his role as an accidental activist, Jim received calls of congratulations from President Obama and Vice President Biden after the historic ruling. So we, de we decided to marry in Maryland because it was the one state where both people did not have to appear in person to apply for the marriage license. So I was able to get the marriage license by myself, go back to Cincinnati, then we flew to Maryland in a chartered medical jet, which our family and friends helped pay for. They wanted us to get married and they wanted to be part of it. And they covered the entire $14,000 cost of that jet. And John's Aunt Paulette went with us because years earlier she said, you know, you guys represent marriage more than any other couple I know. And if you can ever get married, I want to do it. So Aunt Paulette was with us and we flew to BWI. We landed and we parked on the tarmac, never left the, the medical jet. And in that jet, Paulette married us. And we got to say, I thee wed. And I do. And that was all we wanted to do. We simply wanted to say those words publicly and legally and live out John's remaining days as husband and husband. During an Ivy Ideas Night in Washington, D.C., Jim shared his inspiring story and discussed his continued work as an activist with organizations such as Human Rights Campaign and Equality Ohio. Please enjoy our conversation with Jim Obergefell. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. an accidental activist. I love that description. What does that mean? Well, for me, you know, I was never an activist, nor was my husband, John. For us, our activism really was writing a check. We'd sign a check, and that was it. We never did anything, with one minor exception. There was one time I protested a potential law in Cincinnati which would change the city charter to say no laws could be passed to protect the LGBTQ community. So that was the one time I did something. I actually stood outside of my polling place protesting that law, which passed, unfortunately. But that was it. Otherwise, we signed checks, and we supported the organizations we cared about. So for me, accidental activist means I ended up in a place, in a situation where Something was so important to me, so meaningful to me, that I was spurred to action. John and I were both spurred to action. We were forced to, to say, this isn't right, this is not acceptable, and we're going to fight this. We're going to file this lawsuit and do everything we can to fight against something that we thought was wrong, harmful, and hurtful. So it was just 
all those circumstances coming together in perfect harmony for me to become an activist. Take us back to how that relationship started. Cincinnati, Ohio, see this charming looking man, John. How, <laughs> how, did, that, how did that begin for you? Well, well, John and I, you know, the first time I met John, so I was, we, John and I both went to the same university. We didn't know each other. We had lots of friends in common. And after we had both graduated, I was out with a friend of mine who was a friend of John's. And we went to a bar for drinks, and John was at the bar. Now, at this point, I was still closeted. This was, I was 26. I was teaching high school German, or getting ready to teach high school German, and closeted as closeted could be. And we went to this bar, and my friend Kevin introduced me to John. And that was it. Nothing happened. Not surprising, since I was closeted. I quit my teaching job and went to graduate school, and it was during graduate school that summer that I finally had the courage to come out. And I happened to be back in Cincinnati visiting, and I went out with Kevin again, and we went to the same bar, and that same tall blonde guy was sitting at the bar drinking another gin and tonic, and it was John. And we met the second time. And, you know, still even then, by this point I was out, but nothing happened, nothing changed. A couple months later, I'm back in Cincinnati for the holidays. John and Kevin are roommates, housemates, and they were throwing a New Year's Eve party, so Kevin invited me to the party. And I went to that party and I never left. So for us, it was, wasn't love at first sight, it was love at third sight. <laughs> that worked out well for it you. It did. So everything's you know, moving along swimmingly with this relationship, and then life takes a turn that John wasn't expecting. Tell oh. us about the ALS diagnosis. Yeah, that, that was definitely something neither one of us was expecting. So in early 2011, I noticed when John was walking, it just sounded different. It was like one foot was slapping the floor harder than the other, and it didn't go away. So we thought, pulled muscle, sprained ankle, but since it didn't go away, I finally convinced him, you've got to go to the doctor. And that started a series of specialist visits, neurologist visits, and the diagnosis in June of 2011 was ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. And if you know anything about ALS, it's a death sentence. Mm. Patients die within two to five years. There's no cure. At that point, there was one approved drug that really didn't do much of anything. And John, being the man that he was, he was never angry or bitter about it. In fact, his whole concern from that diagnosis on was about me. And he was the one who said, Jim, we have this condo, it's not going to be good for me when I can't really walk, so we need to buy a new condo, and when we buy that new condo, my name will, will not be on the deed, only your name will be. He was always thinking about me, thinking about the future, and never angry or bitter, and it still amazes me that he was that way. So within two years, so that was, he was diagnosed in June of 2011, and by April of 2013, he started at-home hospice care, and I was, I was his primary caregiver, other than about five hours a week when the nurses visited. And he was completely bedridden. He could move his right hand a little bit, he could turn his head, he could speak a couple sentences at most. Luckily for me, I, when I think of ALS, I think the thing that I, I'm happiest about is for some ALS patients, the first thing they lose is their voice. They lose the ability to speak. That was one of the last things John lost. And I'm grateful to that because he had this beautiful, mellow, deep voice and one of the most amazing ways of 
describing things and phrasing things. Beautiful, beautiful command of the English language. So that was so much of his person. I'm, I'm really thankful that he held on to that almost until the end. It's really one of the most horrific diseases. Your entire body shuts down, but your mind is completely lucid and completely understands you know, everything, everything that's happening. You're losing every single day. Absolutely. So how did that begin to lead towards steps on an, an illegal term where you begin to think, okay, well, what does this really mean and how are we defined in the eyes of the law? Right, so the only good thing I can say about ALS is you know the end is coming. You know you have limited time. So we had the luxury of being able to go to our lawyer, go to our financial people, and make all of those changes that we needed to in advance. So everything was taken out of John's name. We did all of those things in advance because we knew the end was coming. And we knew as a just two men who happened to own a home together and live together, we had no other legal protection. So we, we were able to take all of those steps that we could. So for us, we were lucky in that way. The whole concept of marriage, you know, that was something we talked about many times over our 21 years together. But for us, we never wanted to marry and have it just be symbolic. You know, we had friends who had marriage ceremonies or commitment ceremonies. For us, that wasn't good enough. We, we actually wanted to exist in the eyes of the law, so we decided we're not going to marry until our government will actually say we exist. So we did all those things that we needed to, financially, legally, property, etc. And it was really in June, on June 26, 2013, when the Supreme Court ruled on the Windsor case, striking down the Defense of Marriage Act, that our lives took yet another turn. You talk about this in your book, Love Wins, and there's an amazing photo in, in the book here where um, you actually got an airplane, chartered a medical plane, and flew with John to Maryland. You, you can tell he, he doesn't have a lot of ability in this photo, and you're holding his hand there. What is this moment about? That moment was about publicly and legally saying I'm, I commit to you, I make these promises to love, honor, and protect you. And it wasn't something we ever thought we'd be able to do, but when that Windsor decision came out striking down DOMA, it meant the federal government would have to recognize lawful same-sex marriages. And as soon as that decision was read, I just had a moment of love and whatever, I leaned over, hugged him and kissed him and said, let's get married. Because finally, in our, for the first time, we could actually get married and have means something. Actually have our government acknowledge us and say, yes, you exist as a married couple. You, you matter. And that was what we wanted. We simply wanted to marry and have it mean something legally. Because in all ways, emotionally, we were already married, but we wanted, we wanted to make it legal. So you flew to Maryland to, to, to do that, but then it wasn't recognized in the way that you wanted in, in Ohio. So begin to lay the landscape here of what was going on in your relationship. Meanwhile, what eventually became over 32 other plaintiffs, similar sorts of things were happening all across the United States. So we, did, we decided to marry in Maryland because it was the one state where both people did not have to appear in person to apply for the marriage license. So I was able to get the marriage license by myself, go back to Cincinnati, and then we flew to Maryland in a chartered medical jet, which our family and friends helped pay for. They wanted us to get married and they wanted to be part of it. 
And they covered the entire $14,000 cost of that jet. And John's Aunt Paulette went with us because years earlier she said, you know, you guys represent marriage more than any other couple I know. And if you can ever get married, I want to do it. So she went to the internet and clicked the ordain me button. <laughs> so, How yeah, handy. Yeah, she was, she was much more optimistic about it than we were. We never thought it would happen. So Aunt Paulette was with us and we flew to BWI. We landed and we parked on the tarmac, never left the, the medical jet. And in that jet, Paulette married us. And we got to say, I thee wed. And I do. And that was all we wanted to do. We simply wanted to say those words publicly and legally and live out John's remaining days as husband and husband. So how did this work with the lawyers? Are you going out seeking them saying, wait, this doesn't work now that we're home in, in Ohio? Walk us through that. We had no plans. We had never dreamt of or thought of anything related to, to a, a lawsuit. We really just wanted to get married. And we got married on a Thursday. So that weekend, our local newspaper did a story about us. And friends of ours were at a party. They ran into a friend of theirs who's a civil rights attorney. And our story came up in conversation. And Al Gerhardstein, the civil rights attorney, said, would you think they'd be willing to talk to me? So they got in touch. John and I talked about it. Sure, why not? So on Tuesday, five days after we got married, he came to our home. And he pulled out a blank Ohio death certificate. And he said, you know, do you guys understand that when John dies, his last official record as a person will be wrong? Ohio will say he's single, unmarried, and Jim, your name won't be there as his surviving spouse. He was right, we hadn't thought about that. You know, we knew Ohio wouldn't recognize our marriage because of that mini DOMA, the state level DOMA. We knew that, but that law, that constitutional amendment, that was an abstract concept. This paper, this piece of paper, John's last record as a person, made it real. And that's when the harm that that constitutional amendment was doing to people and the harm that it could do became real to us. And when Al asked us if we wanted to do something about it, you know, we were heartbroken, but we were also angry. And we said, okay, what can we do? So that was Tuesday. On Friday, we filed our lawsuit in federal district court. And on Monday, 11 days after we got married, I was in federal district court for the hearing. This process always has multiple steps. What was the biggest blow for you before you got to the Supreme Court? The biggest blow absolutely was after we won in federal district court, John died three months later, but, our, but he died knowing his death certificate was, would be accurate. So I know that gave him a sense of comfort. And our attorney, Al, also started a second case around birth certificates. He had um, three lesbian couples in Cincinnati with children and a gay couple in Manhattan who adopted in Ohio, who said, Ohio, we want accurate birth certificates for our children. They deserve to have both of our names listed. That's their first record as a person. And what would happen, you know, the way it was, they would put one, one parent's name, that was it. Well, what if that parent died? The other parent would lose that kid. That child would end up in the system. So they sued the state of Ohio to say, our kids deserve this, they won. Then our case, then after John died, the state of Ohio appealed our case as well as the birth certificate case, and we were consolidated with other cases from Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan, and we went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And going to that court, we were told right up front by our legal team, they said, don't, don't hold your breath on this. It's perhaps the most conservative appeals court in the country. 
So don't go in thinking we're going to win. And they were right. They ruled against us. And it, by this point, we had more than 30 plaintiffs from across the four states, you know, couples who wanted to marry, couples who had married in other states, children. I mean, the youngest plaintiff was two-year-old Cooper, born in Ohio and adopted by Joe and Rob in New York. There was another widower, David. His husband died unexpectedly. So there were more than 30 of us, more than 20 attorneys, and we went to the Sixth Circuit, and they ruled against us. And for me, that by far, other than the day John died, you know, that fell within that, this whole story, that was a low day, but the day the, the Sixth Circuit ruled against us was, for the legal aspect, that was the lowest moment for me. And I was still pretty deep in my grief because that happened about a year after John died. And I remember thinking, you know, I could just say I'm done. I want to go back to my normal life, figure out what life will be like without John, but I couldn't do it because I still, I didn't feel like I'd lived up to my promises to love, honor, and protect him. Because if I didn't keep fighting, those things could be taken away. So we filed cert with the Supreme Court. And in January of 2015, they accepted the case. And when you walked in those doors, what was your first thought? Honestly, looks kind of like a French whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love your honest response. <laughs> I, I, I walked in, I don't know why, but I was expecting this you know, dark wood paneled courtroom, but it was marble and limestone and these dark red drapes with gold fringe. I, if you know the Muppets, I honestly kind of expected Statler and Waldorf to show up. So it was this weird mix of theatrics with a little touch of French Whorehouse, the red drapes. So it did, and it was smaller, much smaller than I expected. So those were, honestly, those were my first, my first reactions. But then just sitting there thinking, what's gonna happen? And I really had to force myself not to think too deeply about what questions were asked, what the justices said, because I realized I don't know these justices well enough. I don't know law well enough to read anything into what is said in court. So I sat there just taking notes of what was asked and what was responded. That way I kept my brain busy and I wasn't going off on these tangents, freaking out. I mean, there are 32 other plaintiffs, but it's your name, Jim, that's on this case. How was that to be the face of, of this community and of all these families? I felt guilty because it wasn't just about me. It wasn't just about Jim Obergefell. It was about these other, it was about John, it was about 30-some other plaintiffs. So I definitely felt guilty that just Supreme Court tradition, the first case to file cert, that's how they name a consolidated case. We were the first to file cert. So that's how it happened. But I have to say the other plaintiffs were great. They said, Jim, you're doing such a great job speaking for all of us, representing us, keep doing it. And I also, at that point, I had changed careers. I got my real estate license. So I had the flexibility to say, I'm gonna take a step back from that and I'm gonna concentrate on this case. The other plaintiffs had jobs and kids to worry about. Was there a moment during the case where you thought, ooh, I don't think this is gonna go the way I want this to go? No, honestly, I went in there thinking we're gonna win. I, I refused to waste any time or energy thinking about the possibility that we would lose. I just refused to do it. It wasn't worth, it wasn't worth the energy. So I walked out thinking we were six to three. 
I can't tell you why I thought that, but I thought, yeah, we're gonna, we won this six to three. So I will say sitting in that courtroom, you know, hearing these ridiculous arguments over the term marriage and tradition and, you know, marriage has meant the same thing for millennia. RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I love when that argument came up and she said, no, it doesn't mean the same thing because women are no longer the property of their husband. So yes, we have already changed the defini definition of marriage. So there were a few moments in the courtroom that really gave me hope. And it was just those, those I thought, the ridiculous arguments about democratic process. Doesn't matter that a majority of people voted for it. Doesn't make it constitutional. Doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it moral. But I will tell you, for me, the, the most amazing experience I had in that courtroom during oral arguments, I was sitting out in the public part of the courtroom because I was in there for the full two and a half hour session. The other plaintiffs had to decide if they wanted to be in there for the hour and a half arguments on the right to marry or the hour arguments on the right to recognition of lawful marriages. I was out in the courtroom with Aunt Paulette sitting next to me, just in public seats, and people didn't know who I was. Somehow it came out, I blame Aunt Paulette. <laughs> but the guy sitting next to me said, you know, Jim, I, I have to tell you, your and John's story really has changed people's minds. I have a twin brother who's a Roman Catholic priest. And he called me this morning and said, Rob, I know you're going to the oral arguments. I just have to tell you, I watched a story about the name plaintiff and his late husband, and it's really making me rethink this. It's, it's really affected me deeply. A little bit later, Rob is telling that same story to Aunt Paulette, but he said, their story really changed two people. And I thought, well, you told me about your brother, who's the other person? And Rob turns to me, shakes my hand, and thanks me for the fight, and then tells me he's an evangelical Republican. That probably would have been number one on my list of people I would have never expected to be thanked by. But for me, it was this realization that I'd had previously that our story resonated with people. Everyone loves someone, everyone loses someone they love. And I think bringing it down to that, it was all about love and respect and dignity and loss. I think that it helped people think about this in a different way. And he was a perfect example of it. So for me, that is by far my most meaningful memory from that courtroom. Then there's the waiting game. Mm -hmm. And June 26th comes around again. Yep. What was happening that day? So I started going back to DC in mid-June to be in the courtroom for every decision day because I wanted to make sure I was there. I wanted to hear it from the court's mouth. And it was there the 15th, the 22nd, and on the 22nd, we left the courtroom, and we were out front, and runners came out and said, well, they just added Thursday, June 25th as a decision day. A few moments later, they came running out, well, they just added Friday, June 26th as a decision day. Now, at that point, we'd all thought it was going to happen on Monday, June 29th. Well, when they said June 26th, we all thought, hmm, June 26th, that's an important day in gay rights from the Supreme Court. Lawrence versus Texas, which struck down sodomy laws, and Windsor, which struck down DOMA, both came out on June 26th. So everyone started to think, it's gonna happen on Friday. So I got there Friday morning and I took my place on the sidewalk, the public line to go into the courtroom, and the atmosphere was completely different. It was lighter, it was looser, it was more positive, it was happier. And then the police officer came by and passed out the tickets for the courtroom, because everybody who's in the courtroom in the public line has a ticket. And they pass them out, and I'm number one in line, and we're all just chatting. And I look at my ticket, and I notice something has changed. Every other day, the ticket 
for the courtroom had been bright orange. Friday, June 26th, it was lavender. How could that not be a sign? <laughs> so that made us all much more hopeful. So we finally get into the courtroom and the session starts and the Chief Justice says, Justice Kennedy will read the first decision and they read our case number, which I'd only finally memorized the day before. <laughs> and I did this in my seat and I think I squeaked, made some noise and I'm sitting with friends so I've grabbed their hands and Justice Kennedy starts reading the decision and my first thought is, we won. And he keeps reading this legal language, which isn't always the clearest. And I thought, well, did we? I'm not sure. And he kept reading. And once it finally hit me that, yes, we really did win, I just burst into tears. And all around the courtroom, you could hear people crying. You could see people crying. And you know, other than my immediate thought of, I miss you, John. I wish we were here to experience this and to know we won. I then realized, wow, for the first time in my life as an out gay man, I feel like an equal American. And then you get the call from uh, President Obama. How did that go? Yes, yeah, so we finally leave the courtroom and we end up out on the plaza in the midst of these thousands upon thousands of cheering, happy people. And I mean, what an experience. I mean, the air was electric. I mean, it was amazing. And I read my statement to the press, other, other plaintiffs and attorneys speak to the press, and then I'm doing an interview with CNN, and I finish my interview and I turn around and someone says, Jim, you have a phone call, and hand me a mobile phone on speaker in the midst of thousands of people making noise, singing, cheering, and it's the president. <laughs> so here I am trying to talk to him on the phone, and while I'm talking with him, the vice president called and went to voicemail. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Don't you just wish that you could say that yourself once in your life? You know the vice president called and went to yeah. voicemail. So, so I talk with the president and I hang up and then I do all these interviews and the very first question every single interviewer asked me is, well Jim, what did, you know, the president called you, what did, what did he say, what did you say? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I had this vague recollection of him saying something along the lines of, thank you for making the world a better place. You and your husband did something really amazing. But I wasn't even sure. I honestly didn't even know if I formed complete sentences. I didn't know if I was respectful and polite. So luckily that all happened right in front of that CNN crew and they got it all on tape. So I was able to watch it the next day. I did not sound like an idiot. I was respectful. So, I mean, not something I ever thought I would experience. The President of the United States calling me to thank me. It was amazing. Congratulations on that. What's next, Jim? I mean, you've had one of the most epic experiences and changed the social landscape of this country. Where do you go from here? I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, but, well, the past, you know, the book came out last June, and that has kept me so busy on a book tour. Um, I do speaking engagements. I attend a lot of events. I've, you know, I've testified on Capitol Hill. I've um, uh, just had one of those moments where is my your work stopped. done? No, my activist? work is not done. Is it Absolutely just not done. Um, the past year has just been so busy with the book especially that I haven't had 
really the chance I need to figure out what my activism looks like now, because I am for good an activist. I have to keep fighting. You know, I think about where we are right now. I hear over and over, especially right after the election, people were saying, Jim, what's going to happen to marriage? Are we going to lose it? Should we get married right now before it goes away? And I will tell you, if, if any of you have wondered that and are concerned about that, I will tell you, I've talked to a lot of people much smarter than I am, attorneys, people who, who know the Supreme Court, and they tell me not to worry about that in any way, shape, or form. They say, marriage, don't worry, it should be good, because, you know, think about it, it's going on two years now. How many hundreds of thousands of couples have gotten married and have formed families? And they're part of their communities, and they are helping people who were opposed to marriage equality understand, we really aren't that scary. We are no different. We want the same thing. So marriage equality has become part of our society. And this case is being cited over and over and over again in many other cases. So all of these people much smarter than I am say, don't worry about it. But for me, what's concerning is how the backlash to marriage equality and all of the gains we've made for the LGBTQ community under President Obama, I mean, the backlash is is terrible. I mean, I think about our transgender siblings. They, they can't even use a restroom without fearing for their lives. And if that isn't un-American, I don't know what is. So I will absolutely be an activist. I'm just trying to figure out what that is. Will I continue working kind of by myself with organizations, or will I tie myself to an organization? That's my goal this summer, to figure that out. Well, the movie based on your life and journey should definitely add to that. I think the big question is, who would play you, Jim? <laughs> who is handsome enough oh, to be able to take on that big role? No, I don't know. I hate this question. <laughs> I know, because I ask you that. I hate I this ask question. you that all the time. So, I, I mean, I will say, names people have thrown out. Um, for me, Michael Fassbender, James Franco. These, these are all twins. Um, I mean, Matt identical Damon, twins. Um, oh, gosh. Who else? Matt Palmer. Well, and then when people push me, come on, Jim. You have to know someone you want to play you. Okay, this is shallow Jim coming out. <laughs> if I'm going to be on the big screen, I, I want to be hot. So, <laughs> Matt Palmer. That's a great one. That's a great one. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.